In issue number two of Tape Up Magazine, I interviewed Robert Schneider of The Apples in Stereo. Since then, he's gone on to produce albums for Neutral Milk Hotel, Olivia Tremor Control, and The Miners, as well as many of his own projects. Plus, he earned a doctorate in mathematics. In March 2018, I hosted Robert at Jackpot Recording Studio for a live podcast and a performance by The Minders. As you will hear, we had a good time. Enjoy. So in issue number two of Tape Op, um, when I was a spring chicken, I believe. Yes, me too. I think I was 33. Um, so uh, now I'm in my 50s. Um, so, uh, You're still we, a spring chicken. We went, I went to see, actually, um, so there's a band called the Thinking Fellers Union. God, they're so good. In San Francisco or Bay Area. And Hugh from the Thinking Fellers, when I interviewed him for issue one at Tape Op, I said, anything cool you've heard lately? And he said, fun trick noisemaker by he the said apples that? and stereo. Yeah, he oh did. Oh, my God. And you don't understand. Like, we worship thinking fillers. Mm. Like, that's, that's awesome that he said that. That's he was cool. really into it. Yeah, they're one of the best bands ever. Oh, yeah. We used to play, when I was in Vomit Launch, we used to play lots of shows together and sleep on each other's floors and, yeah. and uh, drink but, too much beer. But um, Their music was so great. intricate, but also really catchy. It was amazing. And weird, too. Yeah. And oh, weird, it was, oh, it was totally weird. But, yeah, 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 weird, but really good. Weird. Yeah. I don't know how many people have heard that band, the Thinking Fellows Union, Local 282. 282, is that right? Yeah. 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 Cool. Man, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, they're rad. So, um, so, yeah, he said, issue one, here's a little column where I asked different people some stuff. He said that album. So I went and listened to that album. I was like, that's really nice. I like that. And then you were coming through town. The Apples and Stereo played at um, Mount Tabor Theater, which is now known as Quarter World for anyone that just moved is here. Is it a video arcade? It is a video. It's a really fun video arcade. That same place? Actually. Is it yeah. a video arcade? It's a video arcade. arcade. Well, it wasn't a video arcade when I played there. That it was is not. the true tragedy of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a venue. It was a venue off and on for years in certain different ways, uh, different names sometimes. But uh, you guys were playing there with someone, and I cannot recall who. Um, and we sat outside, and we did an interview at a picnic table, I believe, right outside. Yeah. The, that's Fine. right. Yeah, and we're sitting out there, and, and we did an interview late at night on Hawthorne, um, just mere blocks away, which is kind of amazing. And so We that, should just all go there and do this interview. I know. Do you, does everyone want to do a field trip? <laughs> we'll be like, knock, knock, knock. Uh, Bring your quarters. Excuse me, this used to be a rock club, and... <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. 20 ding, years ago, yeah. and I'm, Larry, I'm Larry, and I run the studio. And <laughs> They're like, because yeah. stupid old man. He'll, he'll be like, have you heard Thinking Fellers? And they'll be like... Yeah, uh, what? <laughs> they're like, those crazy old men keep coming yeah. around here and talking yeah. about gibberish. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we actually don't even, we're just standing outside. The place is closed. We don't know yeah. what this place is. <laughs> we don't know what, I know. It's kind of crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like, this was in uh, 96 that we did this interview. It came out in the September or something around then issue of tape op the tape second up was issue. like it was it, for one thing it was, like, it was a zine at the time it was, it was. A, like a it was a, it was a home recording zine and it was by far like the hippest recording magazine and probably zine like of all time and the thinnest too oh yeah it was, it was very thin. Thin. Yeah, that's right that's right i should have brought a copy of that yes I've that got one issue at home. yeah i have it too i just i didn't I was really to bring proud it down. To, i was really proud that you included us in it thank you you know that that was part of the journey of this of doing tape op as i can turn this all about myself for a moment yeah, um you should. was um was meeting so many cool people doing different things in different parts of the country as well. I mean, because talking to you turned me on to the Minders. And when they moved out here, it was like, welcome the Minders, because they're friends with Robert and everybody. And so, you know, there's definitely, it builds a community, too, that just the sort of like-mindedness. 
Yeah, everything. yeah, I totally agree. Being in music is great in that way. Music is like this thing that humans do that like brings us together, and just and we use it when we're together too. That's really yeah. cool. We rock out to your songs that you didn't recognize. Yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah. I was like, shit, this is so good. What could it yeah. possibly be? It's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh my god, these people must be like the best band ever. Who is it? Yeah, no, I'm just joking. I didn't really say that. <laughs> but you know, I, I mean, <laughs> hopefully you're writing music that would appeal to yourself, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, it's probably, and I remember you telling me, this is one of the, the first time I ever had anyone, someone tell me, but it was so amazing how you told the story of like, like, like maybe even laying on your bed playing guitar solos really, really, really stoned. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. Go, I'm not. I'm neither going to uh, disavow or avow the statement. <laughs> now that you have a PhD. You oh no! 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 no, no okay. No. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm just being clever. <laughs> so, yeah. No, you mean like when? I, yes. Yes. I. Yeah. I, I was like, wow, I never thought I'll about getting messed up. up. I'll, I'll, I'll fess up to uh, to, to, to many uh, uh, metaphysical <laughs> guitar playing experiences <laughs> in my life. On another plane. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, let's just skip. I'm going to skip back in history a little bit, but way back like what was the origins of like your four tracking and your eight tracking and stuff like was it just necessity or like recording all the your music and your friend's music okay so um i can i can easily answer the necessity thing and then i'll go into the other thing um um so by for necessity no it was the fact that we like hated the sound of stuff that came out of commercial studios Mm -hmm. like the idea of going into a place and having them make you sound different from the way you felt like you sounded which was felt like it was the case in at the time like 80s music yeah and 80s stuff. music and stuff and this was the 80s and so like like um that, number one that didn't appeal to like the apples or my friends in the elephant six collective like we wanted we didn't want to we wanted to make our own sounds like if you're an artist you don't go in somewhere somewhere else and you're like uh i'd like to paint a face there <laughs> can you do a face for me and they're like hey is this like it and you're like no, that's photorealistic. I was thinking more primitive <laughs> or whatever. And that's what like going to a studio felt like. So watercolors, like, uh, um, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so like, um, so I think it wasn't out of necessity. It was out of aesthetic. It was an aesthetic choice plus yeah. necessity because we were also broke. But we would, yeah. that, but that didn't matter. Like, uh, yeah. Um, so I started recording when I was in probably, I guess sixth grade. I figured out, which many people of our age group figured out. So you used to be able to get these awesome dual cassette boom boxes back in the day. I'm sure you can still get them. But they had this feature. You would like dub cassettes from one to the other. But also boom boxes had built-in mics. And they still do, actually. And they sound great. That's a great way to record. Mm-hmm. And so like, um, you, could, you could play a tape on the, one of the tape decks the, uh, that you would use as a dubbing deck. But you could have it set up so that the microphones would be live. And so the microphones are picking up the tape you're playing, and they're also picking up the sounds in the room. And you'd probably like discover something like that by accident, yeah. like I did, because this um, lady who lived in my neighborhood, who was the mom of one of my sister's friends, hired me to make her a s- series of heavy metal compilations. So I was really into <laughs> heavy metal. So I like, I like, I like, I like started up a little like cassette label when I was in sixth grade to like dub off bootleg heavy metal cassettes for this woman. And so like, uh, uh, and while I was dubbing off the cassettes, after I got through some volumes of it, I noticed that me shuffling around in the room and stuff was on the cassettes. And I was like yeah. mortified. Uh-oh. I was like, oh my God. But then like in the same moment, I like realized, oh my God, I could 
play music off of the thing and play along with it, and yeah. then it would be recorded, and it would have the original music plus me playing along with it, and then you could do that back and forth, and that's uh, just ping-ponging and home recording, and it sounds great, and I still do it sometimes. It's an awesome way to record, and, uh, that, and so that was when I started recording. So I probably started recording before I started playing music. Right. And then, like, um, my parents gave me a synthesizer uh, in the early 80s. Wait, we, stop. Radio Shack manufactured a synthesizer the for Moog. Moog. The Moog so, one, so Radio yeah. Shack manufactured a synthesizer Realistic. for Moog in the early '80s. It's like the best synthesizer ever. The it's Moog MG one Moog they ever made. Yeah, concert master, the concert mate. Concert oh, wait. mate. Uh, yeah. Concert mate was Radio Shack's brand of keyboards. Yeah, there's like, a there's yeah. a there's an SK one copy back there yeah, that, that Casio yeah. made for them. Because like because yeah. Radio Shack was owned by this corporation Tandy. Maybe they still are. I, I'm not sure. And Tandy also owned everybody that manufactured everything. And so they would have Radio Shack would have their version of all other products, including Moog synthesizers. Yeah. But actually, that wasn't just a, a, a knockoff. That was actually there. That was made by Moog for yeah. Radio Shack. And anyway, my parents bought it for me for my birthday. There was a secondhand one, and uh, yeah. I really had desired it as a child, my whole childhood. And so uh, I started to record with that and the, the boombox and that developed through some years to me starting to pick up on four track and during the same time all of my friends that I grew up with that I started to play music with I grew up in a small town in Louisiana called Ruston mm -hmm. and some of my friends um, that I ended up forming the Elephant Six Collective with um, we would trade cassettes and do boombox recordings and stuff uh, back and forth and I think I probably was the first one to start doing multi-tracking like that. So mine were like slightly more elaborate. Like it would have a guitar and then also a guitar solo or something like that. I mean, <laughs> it was like crap. But I'm just saying you would have those two things instead of yeah. one thing. <laughs> like, Planning uh, ahead. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And like, um, so where was I going with all of that? Oh, uh, okay. So flashing forward some years, there was this guitar store in Ruston, the town we grew up in, and they had like a demo four track. And the four track had like this demo tape. It was a Fostex X15 four track, which is like a really great sounding tape machine and also mic preamp. And um, there's, uh, you could like, the demo had like some band for Fostex playing a four channel song. So it was like, here's the drums and here's the guitar and here's the bass and here's the organ or something like that. And you could sit there and mix it in the guitar store. And it like felt so magical to do that. And um, my guitar teacher turned me on to the fact that you could rent the four track, you could rent the four track for $5 a day. What? Okay. So, um, but if you rented it on Friday, <laughs> then, then you could... If you rented it on Friday, you could uh, you on Friday before closing at the night. You're basically renting it for Saturday, but they were closed on Sunday, so you didn't have to turn it until Monday. So you could have the four track from Friday through Monday. Oh yeah, for five bucks. That's pretty much an album session, right there. It was awesome. Yeah. And so, like, um, I went with my friend Bill Doss, who's uh, uh, one of my best friends and um, bandmate, uh, my lifelong musical band bandmate. Um, he, uh, um, we went to. Haymaker's guitar store and we bought we rented the four track for the weekend and we went over to my high school because it was the only place that was like private that I knew where I, there weren't other people around right. and there's this outdoor bus stop at the high school and I had noticed that the outdoor bus stop had an electricity plug and I'd always fantasized about going and playing guitar there with my amp really loud and yeah. like fucking like blowing away all the kids at high school like they'd be like what is that noise and I'd be like <laughs> in fact I did that once I did a book report for my uh, freshman uh uh English class um, on Jimi Hendrix. I read the autobiography, but yeah. my book report was I went and I played Purple Haze and I had a dashiki and shit. It was so awesome. So I did get to live out that fantasy too. <laughs> no one shot video, huh? Uh, yeah, no, no, no I don't video. think so. I don't okay. think that was, I think that was before video. Yeah. They shot uh, Zoho. Uh, what do you call the thing where it's like zoetrope? Zoetrope is that, is that the old yeah. animation thing? Yeah, That's what they, they shot. shot that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> moving silhouettes in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so we went and recorded a, a song at the bus stop at my school, and it was my first four-tracking experience. And I spent the whole weekend working on it. It was very elaborate, because I already knew how to ping-pong and stuff, because I'd figured it out on the boombox. It had all these pianos and harmonized lead guitars and harmonies. It was a very, very pretentious song. It was, it was pretty great, I think. And so like, that was my first recording and my first song I ever wrote. Wow. And, uh, and so... So I had always been recording. It was just part of what I did. And I've always seen it as being part of the songwriting process for yeah. me. And songwriting and recording kind of just going together. I don't see it as being, it's just like that's my, that's my instrument. Just like you might write a song on guitar and be like, oh, well, obviously I'm going to play it on the guitar. Well, it's like I write a song and I'm going to play it on the recorder. Right. And so uh, it worked out. And so anyway, that's why I've always wanted to home record and to <laughs> four track or whatever to, to, and to be in control of it. It's just because yeah. it's like, are you going to tell somebody else to paint your painting or tell somebody else to play your guitar? Now, that doesn't apply to you. <laughs> you are the most amazing audio engineer, and I would tell you to paint my painting any day. <laughs> well, I, know, I mean, I understand that. But it's like when, you know, we write about this a lot in the magazine, too. It's like if you go, you hire a studio and you go in and you haven't done like sort of the, the pre-production part of saying, is this the right person to work with our band or whatever? Does this person understand our music? Is this person going to be like just, you know, punching the clock and doesn't care that we're there or who we are? Or is this person going to be actively engaged? And that's different. Those are different things. And back yes. when I was young, you would go to a studio and the person would just be like, one guy, I, the first guy I went to the studio with was drunk and I couldn't find my backing vocal part over and over. Like, I don't know where it went. <laughs> Try it again. Oh, can't find it. Like, this is on tape, you know? Like, yeah, the, the part's yeah. on tape. Yeah, and he's drinking wine coolers. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Gives you an idea of the decade this might have yeah. been. Wine coolers. <laughs> um, 85. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. No, <Yeah>. but... <laughs> you probably... Ugh. No, but, but you're right, though. Like, uh, like uh, I guess that there's there's... The thing is that a studio is a great thing for a band to just go in and you rock the fuck out for like three days, like Black Sabbath or the MC5 or the Velvet Underground or something, mm -hmm. and you make a great record where you're capturing your band. And yeah. the recording is done in a way that is not trying to achieve some sort of like standard, uh, like industry style recording, <laughs> but instead you're recording with people who also right. don't know what they're doing or it's very low rent, and right. you get these fucking awesome records out of that. That's yeah, a great way to go use a studio. Yeah. Am I allowed to say fuck on your podcast? No, no. God. You can say anything you want on here. Okay. All right. Is yeah. anybody offended by, by, yes. by the word podcast? You can say fuck on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm offended by the word podcast. <laughs> um, so like, uh, uh, so yeah, yeah, I'm not dissing recording in studios. It's no, awesome. No, no. It's I, awesome. I, if you're going to go record in studio, then you rock the fuck out. My next and, question you know, was, was going to be like, I remember you interviewing you and where you were talked and I want to be able to do the things my way. And then I swear to God, the next record you went and made with Mike Deming. Well, the thing is that I know. Okay, <laughs> right, right? so yeah, yeah, there were two so things. The there same. were two things about that. Yeah. One, I started to record for my friends, like for uh, with Jeff with Neutral Milk Hotel and stuff. Right. And I um, also uh, I didn't know how to use all the equipment, like compressors and stuff. Sure. And Mike Deming had just recorded an album with the Lilies, "Better Can't Make Your Life Better." Great that was like record. the greatest sounding modern record I'd ever heard. It's incredible. Yeah. At that time, it was the only record that had ever come out that really sounded authentically like a classic record, and yeah. and it's audio fidelity and stuff. Yeah. And so I needed to learn more about recording. I had always taught myself from childhood. Um, and so like um, I would use compressors and stuff, but I was just doing it by feel. I really didn't know what the knobs were doing. I mean, I was just closing my eyes and twiddling the knobs. And I still do that, <laughs> but now I know what the they... What, what I'm hearing, for? yeah, yeah, <laughs> and like, um, um, I would look at the red line and just be like, it's flashing. It's that's good. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> but that's not good. I don't think that's not always yeah. good on the compressor. <laughs> yeah, some devices. Yeah, you never yeah. know. No, it's usually good though. If the yeah. red light's flashing, it's usually good, unless it's your computer. Then Whoa, it's bad. Yeah, or the car. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. true. Your car. Yeah. That's right. Unless your car is a police car and you're on the, you know, on the go. Well, some, yeah, I mean, you know, sure. solving a That's crime. That's not what something. I meant. You know what I meant. Yeah, I know. Dashboard, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
but I, I thought that was interesting too that you'd you'd taken a, a different path to just explore, you know, working with someone, collaborating with someone well, like Michael Mike's Deming. a recording genius. Yeah, He's incredible. He and I needed to learn the, some of the stuff that he knew. And right mm -hmm. after that, I went and I recorded uh, with the Olivia Trimmer Control. And we were recording Tone Soul Evolution, right. the Apples album. And uh, I recorded uh, In the Airplane Over the Sea. And I recorded right. Hooray for Tuesday right after that. Right. And I just need, I needed to be able to get the skills to be able to pull that stuff off. It's yeah. not like I, I mean, just knowing how to hook things up and use a, a patch bay. He taught me how to use a patch bay. Right. He taught me how to use a tape machine with more than eight tracks. <laughs> um, he taught me how to m use a compressor. It was, it was incredible. Uh, condenser mics, yeah. <laughs> like stuff right. like that. Right. So like, um, uh, he really like kind of like gave me a, cause his studio was a very non-slick studio. It was completely vintage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it was, it was, it was really cool. We recorded to an MCI 24 track, but then also I used, we synced up with Simpty. We synced up my eight track, uh, half inch oh, Otari, right. the same one yeah. that Martin has. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, I would go home with like a rough mix on that and the Simpty track, which is inconvenient though. Cause you had to leave a track open between the Simpty track and the other tracks. That makes a lot of weird noise. Does everybody know what Simpty is? Okay. So you could, with yeah. tape machines, you can print this code to the tape machine. It's kind of like, it's kind of, it's kind of like MIDI. It's kind of like a, rhythmic sounding fax machine code if you were to listen to it it'd be like meow, meow, or something like that yeah, i don't even know what it sounds, it sounds like it's, yeah it's awful it's terrible yeah, it's but harsh. the point is that you could use this code and send it to some master control box that would be hooked up to all of your tape machines and it would it would be like the clock it would be like running all the tape machines off of its clock and they would all have this code on them so it would kind of track the code and be controlling the tape machines and keeping them together it really didn't work that great but people <laughs> have been doing it since like the 60s or something like that yeah, i think that even the i think the beatles developed some method of doing that on sergeant pepper where there they had two certain, four tracks going certain or something way like to that. synchronize the uh, motors by yes. the, by the, the hertz um, that's what it of is the voltage yes, yeah through the voltage you you, yeah, you override yeah, the you internal oscillator in. and you yeah. yeah yeah you're totally right that's yeah. what it is and that's so what that's what the that's what the clock's doing probably. yeah and this clock is like is like controlling the capstan motor which is the the little uh, metal thing that spins and the pinch roller holds the tape against it and keeps everything in track yeah. so that it, it when you'll see what if you ever have to lock two tape decks together using simpty uh simpty time code that's what you call it um that you'll see one will have to catch up with the other one so you have to have a little bit of extra time at the beginning of the song and you hit record and play or whatever. And then you watch the tapes go, and then they yeah, yeah. catch up. And tape machines are really different too because like the, uh, the the tape machine runs at a slightly different speed depending on where the where in the reel yeah. you are. So like if the reel, if you're at the beginning of the reel, so one side has a lot of tape on it and the other side doesn't, then one side's being dragged and the other side is like really free to spin. And unless your tape machine's really awesomely calibrated and you keep it calibrated all the time and yeah. stuff, then it's like, it runs slightly differently from p part of the tape machine to part of the tape machine and you're trying to sync up two or more tape machines like that and so yeah yeah, yeah it's pretty awesome fun and like uh <laughs> um no it was awesome though and so i would yeah. i would take the tapes home and we would do overdubs on the eight track and then go to michael's studio yeah and, and simpty it up with his 24 track and dump the tracks over there and like it worked out great actually he was really yeah. good at doing that stuff too that yeah, was, good, that was a cool technician. experience yeah he's great yeah. he was awesome yeah. he's very uh he's like the audio guru for for me and at that time i really needed him too that's it cool. It was great. And so, yeah, yeah, I did want to do it my way, but I had to learn how to do it my way. Yeah. I mean, I did, I essentially did the same path with working with John Bacigalupi, who's my partner in tape. Oh, yeah, of course. But I went, made records with him, and he was the producer engineer, and he would, 
be like, oh, we're going to use this condenser mic on the vocal. Like, why? Why? What's that? You know, like I learned all these things by yes. hanging out and watching. Yeah, you learn to fetishize the right stuff. Yeah. Like Universal Audio and Neumann. Yeah. That's basically like I learned to fetishize that before they were companies that you could buy their their their, their gear again. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Uh, true, true. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like certain things sounded better than others, so you've learned about that. Yeah, that's right. And so, you learn what the cool junkie gear is. That's the most important thing to yeah. pick up from other musicians. Because like the, yeah, uh, all of like culture is telling you what the cool professional gear is and what the cool and what the fancy vintage gear is right but there's nobody out there besides just other musicians and pe recording people to tell you what the really awesome shitty gear is right because that's what you want to populate your studio with if you want yeah. to have a cool studio if you don't have a ton of money too. no well yeah. anyway anyway yeah. you want to you want to sure. and, and then you want to build it up to have awesome gear that is never quite as good as your really shitty gear was <laughs> so, like, yeah. right i mean yes. it's kind of a strange path i mean yes. doing that i mean i can attest to that with this whole building full of junk here you know well, yeah yeah you but you have you have that's right that's yeah. right i'm not your, your gear your gear selection is like the most amazing nah. it's the most amazing <laughs> like, your rack and your your console and stuff is so cool it's amazing yes <laughs> yes yes <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, it's just this is 20 some odd years of just sorting stuff out and, and you figure out you get rid of things you don't like, you know, yes. and, and it's We're just looking you know, around the room yeah. too, all the little organs and oh, yeah, fun things to play. Oh, my God. Instruments, you yes. know, you got to have those things. Studio, Do you remember, though, did you ever go to a professional studio like in the later 80s or something and you would walk in and there'd be no instruments anywhere? Oh, in most places, it looks like a dentist office. Yes. There'd be no instruments. And you're like, uh, it's just like a room, maybe a piano uh -huh. if you're lucky. I actually never yeah. went to a professional studio until I went to Mike's studio. I'd never yeah. been inside a recording studio. Right. Oh, wait, no, that's not true. Um, I went to Japan to record with Cornelius um, mm -hmm. on his on Phantasma, yeah. and and they had this really awesome studio where they had like a digital tape machine. It was the first time I'd ever recorded digitally. Yeah. I recorded that on digital. Wow. And uh, while we were recording, there was like uh, another guy with like this really, it must have been like a Fairlight or something like that, like this old school computer terminal. And he was like doing <laughs> programming Bach, programming it with like, uh, you know, it was like, uh, it looked like the uh, the terminal, you know, kind That's of like crazy. interface. Yeah. And like, uh, it was really cool and You're felt like, really futuristic. Yeah. No, but that was, that, that was really awesome too. But, but besides that, the, uh, going yeah. to Mike's studio was the first time I'd ever been to a non- Japanese right. Cornelius, you know, crazy studio. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was, all, it was awesome. Like, oh, that's right, you guys are on there. Yeah, um, so in the middle of that, you're like learning stuff at Mike's, you're making your record, but a four-track Neutral Milk Hotel record gets made, right? Yes, that's and, right. And that, that's, people are still kind of freaking out about. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to make a great album. I know. <laughs> but I'm, I, glad, I'm glad that other people thought so. That's cool. I think a lot of people did. And, and what do you think it is about the, the presentation that, that you helped bring to that, too? Or for, the Jeff's vision? On or Avery Island or for yeah. In the Airplane Over the Sea? Or both of them, really. So on, the, on Avery Island, we recorded on a four-track reel-to-reel. Right. So I had the eight-track at the time. Yeah. But Jeff had always recorded on four-track cassette. And yeah. he, we were all really worried about being slick, but he was really worried about being slick, and he had only recorded on four-track. So right. I was thinking, well, let's use a reel-to-reel, -reel, but it's still four tracks. So we can be limited to using the same number of tracks as you were using before. Right. The way he would record was he'd record on his four-track cassette, mix it to a, just a regular stereo cassette deck. Then you could take that and stick it right back into the four-track. Mm, you have right. two tracks with your mix down and so on. Right. So we did that in, with, with, with the album. So, and yeah. so we mixed it. I think that we mixed it, though, to stereo dat. And that's what I did with Fun Trick Noisemaker 2. And maybe we did that with 
Dusk at Cuba's Castle, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I would record it to a stereo submix and then put it back on two tracks of the eight track. But by the time we were recording right. in the airplane over the sea and Hooray for Tuesday, I would do a, I had two eight tracks in the studio. And so what? I could mix from one eight track down to four tracks on the other. So I have a stereo mm. mix of all of the instruments except for mono drums and a mono bass track of its own. Sure. And then you have four more tracks. And then that's like having a four track and you can do all of that infinite ping ponging and stuff but on that. Right. And it sounded really awesome. Yeah. So, and that was like my mass, that was my peak of, I think, my awesome engineering was being able to having the two eight tracks and bouncing between them because like uh uh uh, i think on production i improved from there but that was like i i was in total control of those tape machines they were like part of me and it felt really good to you really knew what you were going to get when you did certain things how you put printed hot yes that's right that's right i knew exactly how to adjust the inputs and i I, on both of them and i could like i would splice tape so for the minders for hooray for tuesday there's a lot of types tape splicing going into that on every song right like the kind of editing you do on the computer now but like um uh not exactly razor blade but yeah yeah and that felt really good too because you're touching the tape and it's magnetic and you're a magnetic thing and you're touching the tape and you're interacting with it in all these different ways you know you're feeling it and taping it and cutting it and listening back to it and uh, it's a very organic process it felt really mystical i really loved working with the tape machines that was awesome i mean and the proofs in the pudding i mean a lot of those records are just still really fun to listen to Thanks, dude. You know, I think you did okay. <laughs> Thanks. I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, well, I th- I, I th- the one thing that I thought was really interesting that earlier we were talking um, with the with the minders, we were actually uh, getting ready to uh, run through a sound check and stuff, and they were like, "Should we play Hooray for Tuesday?" Which they might Ooh, play. If, um, but the song itself. If you ends, play Hooray for Tuesday, can I play with you? Wait, I, is there enough guitars? Uh, <laughs> I played guitar on it. One of the guitars. Let's throw something together. Who knows? Um, the but the thing that that I mean, it's a short song, but at the end there's kind of this magical little sound collage yes. thing that goes into it, and it's yes. just not. I, I think the thing that that hit me thinking about it is for like, you know, when people say sometimes, oh, this is this is done at someone's house, it's a homemade production, yada yada yada. You think that that means it's all bare bones and there's no there's no filigree and there's no. Um, you know, you're just trying to bash it no, out. No, yeah, it's and the this opposite. Is not, right. It's like you have time to do whatever you want to do if you're willing to tolerate that it might be lo-fi. And mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, like that the more things you put on there, the murkier they sound. Mm-hmm. And then like yeah. also that you just, I mean, that, that's really the, all that there is to it. I can't see any other reason that you wouldn't want to do it unless you want crystal clarity. Like, yeah. Jeff Lynn recording on a four-track cassette machine. I mean, he's like really awesome in the studio. You right. know, like I don't really want to hear him on the four-track. Well, actually, I do. I want to hear Jeff Lynn on the four-track. Yeah. But I'm just saying. And Let's he did. No, no. Actually, I have the Idle Race. Oh yeah, his old band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. from way yeah. back. That was Jeff Lynn's uh, '60s band before he joined the movie. It was probably four-track. It's incredible. No, four-track it was, studio. It was definitely four-track. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it was, but yeah. it sounds like it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's pretty good too. So yeah. But okay. I, you know, I mean, let's get talk- Jeff Lynn in here to comment. Where is he? Can we do that? Because I really just, call him. Yeah. 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 So see what he's doing. <laughs> uh. um, so did did you see? I mean, you talk about this stuff and and, and being in control, but did you ever see it as limitations too? I mean, like you know, when you think like oh, I could have sixteen tracks. You know, uh, I bought a sixteen then. track. Then you bought a sixteen <laughs> yeah. track. No. Right. Okay. And that's a funny story because. Um, uh, I I had uh, so we had the two eight tracks going and I uh, I saved up the recording budget for our album Discovery of the World Inside the Moon the Apple's album so uh, so when we would get our budgets from Spin Art the label that we were on mm-hmm. uh, I would just we would just buy new gear and so like um, and then the studio was our practice space too and it was our band studio and some people lived there yeah like Jim McIntyre lived there and when we would do recording projects it would just pay for all of those costs so we just like 
practice space and right. Jim's home and everything was just paid for. So that was how the <laughs> and so and so like the studio was it, it was really just for uh well Okay, the point is that I would take the entire recording budget and buy gear. And so I had seen in this uh, Pro Audio Marketplace magazine, there was like this zine that used to come out every few months, or maybe it was every month. I used this to was like, that. And it was, and it was like, it was, it was a classified ads, but it was like an international audio thing. <laughs> you could buy like, I bought my Neumann from it, from Mark Lynette, Brian Wilson's oh engineer. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so like, uh, you'd get Pro Audio Marketplace, and it'd come in, and you'd like, oh, you'd be flipping through, and you'd be like, oh my God, an LA-3A. And you'd flip, and you'd be like, oh my God, that patch bay. <laughs> and like t- TT cables or whatever and oh, like yeah. and it was like hundreds and hundreds of things I mean it was like the thing is that that sounds so obvious and unnecessary with the internet but right. it was not it, there was nothing like it without the internet mm-hmm. and, and how are you going to do something like that how are you going to do anything without the internet you have a zine right. <laughs> and so that's, like that's what they did that's where we got the console and the tape deck in the first iteration of Jackpot was from that pro the, audio uh, that, so, uh, they had, yeah. there was a 16 track in LA yeah. that some studio was selling yeah. it, was an, it was an Ampex MM1200 mm-hmm. MM1200 is a classic tape machine it's classically fat I mean <laughs> it's actually really really heavy it's really hard for even four people to lift it but it also was classically like one of the warmest grainiest tape machines and so like um i saw that it was available and we could spend our entire recording budget and buy it and so we bought the 16 track tape machine from like 1973 or something like that and like some weeks later it came it arrived at our studio our studio was like a um it was in like an abandoned building. So the front of the studio was a, it was all boarded up with like graffiti and stuff. You had to enter through the alley. And so the alley was like a little parking lot that was like fenced in. And there were a couple of, uh, there was a duplex that also we shared it with. And that's where the minders lived. And so like we had that little back area, that parking lot. And it was like our little just area. And we had this community. We had yeah. this community that was closed off from the rest of the world. Because in the front, it looked like, a, like a, an abandoned building. In the back, it was a fenced in little area that we had. So it was really beautiful and magical. Den- in Denver. This is in Denver. So this yeah. is why we're recording Hooray for Tuesday and In the Airplane Over the Sea and Dusk at Cuba's Castle and I worked on Black Foliage and a lot of other stuff. I can't even remember yeah. what albums I recorded there, but a lot of stuff. Yeah. So that was, it was really amazing. And Martin was recording all of his stuff. Um, and uh, in any event, they, we, had, they, we had to bring in the tape machine through the alley. And so, and, and bring it in through the back of the studio because that was the only entrance to the studio. Yeah. And the tape machine came and it looked like, you know, like the, in old cartoons, if you like were to like say mail order a rhinoceros, <laughs> like what it would come in, it would come in, in the cartoon, it would come in a huge crate, you know, and you're like <laughs> with the crowbar, crate yeah. opens and the rhinoceros comes charging out or something. Or maybe it's a boxing kangaroo or whatever, you know, is going on in the cartoon, right? Probably. So it was like that. It was a huge crate, an old school wooden crate. And we opened it up and there was this beautiful tape machine. And that was like probably the first really professional, maybe it's the only really professional piece of gear I've ever owned. I mean, that was like a really great tape machine. And so um, we started recording on it. The very first track that I printed on it was like a drum track. Uh, no, it was bass. I wanted to check because I'd heard it was really good for bass. And so I recorded a bass at 15 ips. Yeah. God, it sounded so good. Oh, man, it was so great. I just knew it was such a great decision. And so um, that tape machine sounded great. However, it had a flaw, which I discovered on the third day of using it, which is that every three days that you use the tape machine, it blows out all of the diodes in the transport mechanism. Because this tape machine has like, you know, it's got like motors that are turning the tape machine, right? And it's an earlier tape machine, so they hadn't totally nailed this down yet. And um, the tape is really heavy. The two-inch tape is very, very heavy. And so after a couple of days, it's just like worked. It's just like, I'm done. And so, like all the diodes that are in that are antique electronics are uh, they, they would blow out. And so the um, there was a, a audio repair place in Denver that came in and they fixed it. But they were like, 
this is going to keep happening. It's, it turns out it's a fatal flaw in this machine, and you're going to have to learn to fix it yourself. Oh, and so man. now what was really lucky was that there was this electronic store right around the room, uh, right around the corner from our studio. Our studio was in this uh, really old rundown business district in Denver that now is probably, it's, I think it's all condos. Yeah. But like, um, but there was this old store that had been there since like 1920. Not only had it been there since 1920, it had back stock going back what? to 1920. You could get like oscilloscopes and stuff from like the very, very, very old gear and stuff there. That's and like, crazy. And they had, literally, you could get electronics from any era, but right. just in this old store. I mean, it was before the internet, but I'm sure that when the internet happened, they were like, they sold everything in like one day. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, um, so we would Boom. go over there and like eventually though, we started to buy them out of their diodes. And yeah. we had to start, I did, I bought all of their old old stock diodes. So I had to start to find other places oh, in God. Denver. And then, I, and, and, then, and then I had to learn how to replace it with other diodes and stuff. The whole thing yeah. was a nightmare. But in the, in, in the meantime, um, uh, I had to learn about electronics. And uh, in learning about electronics, uh, I got really into mathematics and started to study it on my own and stuff. And then I ended up going to graduate school like a few years ago. And then last week, I defended my PhD dissertation. And so like, um, uh, it turned out to be okay that the tape machine was breaking down all the time. But it was really good too, because we had the two eight tracks. And so um, we were recording two records. The Apples were recording. We were recording two records at the yeah. same time. We would record... Uh, on the days that the tape machine would work, I would record on the 16 track, The Discovery of the World Inside the Moon. And on the eight tracks, we would record her wallpaper reverie on the off days. Oh, so we yeah. had these two things going at the same time. And so uh, because the tape machine was broken so much, it took two years to record Discovery of the World Inside the Moon, whereas it took like a year or less to record uh, Wallpaper right. Reverie. So it ended up that that came out first. But that was, oh, uh, that was cool. It was, it was still productive. Yeah. And then like some years later, Jim McIntyre, my studio partner, ended up springing for the repair. You could, get, you could send in your tape transport block and somebody would like, there's an upgrade you can do. That's a, that ATR oh, yeah. audio services had figured yeah, out. Yeah, Mike Spitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah Mike Spitz did it. Yeah. And he uh, adjusted and sent it back and it worked. But then like basically we stopped having a studio like right after that. So, and I gave <laughs> the tape machine to Bryce Goggin. Together. So Bryce Goggin has it now. Bryce Goggin uh, yeah, has it? So no, that's, that's cool. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Speaking of more people you meet along the road. I mean, that's like... He's the best. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the history here too. Is like we bought a tape deck and then we had to keep buying these little relays. And then, and then learn how to clean the relays like with a little tiny like, file internally oh, yes. and then spray stuff on them and put them back in. And, and they'd be sparking and stuff when you were pulling tape back. It was crazy. That does sound crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty I awesome. Mean, it was, 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 was nerve-wracking. I mean, running, a, running a, uh, you know, some of the older gear, especially, mm -hmm. it's been around a while and things are breaking and, and you're like, oh, my God. You know, and the, and the, that it's so fun to have like the track, like the track width of a 16-track to yeah. which tape deck is, is beautiful and it is a thing you can hear it sounds incredible it's, yeah. it's, it's its own sound and it's, man when it's yeah. not working and your clients are sitting there going well see no that's the difference though I never had clients well you had so just a home studio no it was, I, at that point I wasn't even recording other friends we were just yeah. doing our thing so that, right, was, that right. was cool that was totally fine for me you have to okay. you had a studio where you were trying to like yeah. that's much more stressful yeah, for me though it was not stressful it was a learning experience it was wonderful True. like I mean it was maybe like mildly stressful when you're like you have the greatest drum sound, and then the tape machine literally blows up. Yeah, it's like yeah. it, it, would, it would make a loud pop. The physical tape machine would go, <laughs> and like then and, and it would go, and you'd hear. <laughs> oh yeah, I was last year. I went to a studio in LA, and I was trying to make a record, and and the tape deck stopped rewinding. But if you went oh. out and you went in the other room and you went like this, 
they would it would work yes i had to go i kept going into the machine room and spinning it by hand so let's just like just just spinning the reel a little bit like you're a dj yes yeah so probably like you know how you go in and you calibrate the all the tensions and stuff like that yeah there's something wrong and so like but like it has to be this perfect balance i mean like a tape machine is a beautiful machine it's like when you tune a guitar and if you tune a guitar do any of you play guitar so if you tune a guitar like and you like tune it so that an e chord sounds good right oh yeah so you're like you're like oh it sounds so beautiful and then you play a g chord and you're like oh the b strings out of tune so you're like okay 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 i'll tweak it i'll get the b string okay now it sounds really good and then you go play a d a d chord and like one of the strings is terribly out of tune you're like oh and so like you can like tune the guitar and you can get it to where everything does nothing sounds perfect but right. all the chords sound pretty good right and that's how you yeah. play guitar you get it to that stage and it sounds pretty good but it's not perfect because the yeah. nature of the guitar just the physical nature of the uh, vibrating strings and such is it's is, is such that the mathematics won't line up that all of the yeah, it, it, it's impossible for for a uh, an equ- an equal t- or a, a just intonation instrument like a guitar right. to ever be perfectly in tune. So you have to just make it a balance. And apparently, a tape machine is also tuned to just intonation. Apparently, <laughs> and, and and you can never quite get all those yeah. oscillating little things to like tune up. They're just like guitar strings. Right, they're just drift. they're in something of a balance. Yeah. And so you whacking it must have done the uh, the little bit of the you know <laughs> like it's like it's just like yeah. like I would just, I would just turn spin the a little and yeah. it just start to like oh you know like whatever voltage was telling something yeah but I mean yeah it's it you know but the, the they're wonderful to work with did you eventually start not using tape like for for later recordings did you start okay. using Pro Tools so, or anything along well, the way um. I just use whatever. I use yeah. whatever. Like sometimes I record a yeah. boombox, sometimes I record on the computer. The record, computer's really easy to, to, to record on. Yeah. And um, uh, I like to use 4-track. I just recorded a 7-inch with my band with Air C. Dolphin on 4-track, and it's great. Cool. I love wor- working on 4-track. Um, I think that um, when I record with the Apples, we usually record to tape going off the repro head live into the into into like the computer right and so like um so that the the basic tracks are recorded on tape um and i think uh, it just depends on the sound that you want or the project or whatever um i think um when it was probably like 1980 no let's see when was this 1998 or 99 I had an oscilloscope between the speakers where you would now have a computer monitor. Mm-hmm. So I'd like watch the little like oscilloscope patterns going and stuff. And it's very psychedelic to look in an oscilloscope uh, for, with, watch your music go through it because it looks like this like galaxy that's kind of like morphing and like <laughs> ebbing, you know, in front of you. And, yeah. it's, and it's doing it with your music. And you're so in touch with your music. You're hearing this thing and you're seeing this thing. And the thing looks like retro vector, uh, like graphics or something like that. It's very, very, very cool. But anyway, I got a computer and I put it off to the side. So like you know, there's the oscilloscope there because of course that's where that yeah, would go, and, and like but there's and like I felt uncomfortable with the computer just because well number one I I had previously been under the belief that digital recording would like suck the soul out of the music in some sort of spiritual way mm-hmm. that's totally not true the soul yeah. is from you and your right. instruments it's not it's not it's not from the computer from your recording <laughs> device any recording device is fine like do you have to paint onto canvas or can you do it on wood it doesn't matter yes <laughs> and like um and so like uh, uh but I got a computer and it was really really useful because I could. Uh, when we were transferring between the eight tracks, this is how I used the computer in my studio. Oh, yeah. I would do the mix down from, the, you know, I'd mix down from the eight track to the other eight track, but I'd mix down to four tracks, but I'd mix those into the computer and then I could edit them. And then ah, put them to the other eight track, right. and then keep recording. So the computer was like this midway device. I didn't right. see it as something. I didn't trust that a hard drive would be a 
physical object that would play music in the same linear time sort of way that right. I felt like I needed to hear it. I wanted to see something spinning when I heard music, <laughs> a record or a tape or something. Right. A CD, I just wanted to imagine there was something spinning. I mean, a hard drive yeah. spinning too. You yeah. just can't see it though. Generally. So it seems very abstract. Yeah, you know, what's and going then, on and in And then there? it breaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it breaks. That's <laughs> then it right. it stops spinning. Yeah, yeah. But so like, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think... Um, I mean, God, recording on computers is amazing, actually. Like when we were recording Tone Soul Evolution at Mike Deming's studio, he, was, um, he had been wiping some tape clean. And then we put on the tape reel to work on, uh, on Hillary's song. Um, you were playing it earlier, actually, but I, I, uh, I, I, can't, I think it was Silver Chain, but I can't remember yeah. which song it was. Um, and uh, Mike had had all the tracks on record because he was cleaning the previous tape. Wiping it out. So yeah. when we went to record, when we, he was at the console so he wasn't looking at the tape machine and we hit record for us to do the next track to start it um it was just running and there was no music and we were just sitting there and then we were like hey where's the music and like it was like click and through the talkback mic he was like oh fuck <laughs> and he had just like recorded over like Wiped a huge and this is like elaborate horn arrangements and slide guitars and sound effects and this huge production and we had done all the synthy stuff and gotten it bounced off the a-track successfully and oh stuff my God. and so um mike was like no problem I mean, he didn't say no problem. He said, like, oh, fuck. But then he was like, no problem. <laughs> um, uh, he knew a guy, uh, like, four hours away in, like, Connecticut, or maybe, no, it was in Massachusetts, because we were recording in Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. If you go through Hartford, Connecticut, and you drive, if you're driving through Hartford, Connecticut, and as you're driving through kind of the downtown area, on the left-hand side of the highway, if you're going north, like, you're going away from the city, there's a... Uh, big ass old factory it's a huge old factory and it has like sort of like a, a spire on the top a painted sort of spire like that might be on like a mosque or a, a freemason's temple or something like that so that's where we recorded that the album cult, right that was, was his like, studio the cold 45 factory yeah yeah that's where they made and, they made guns there. yeah yeah and they made music and, and like so but we could go down to massachusetts so we drove down to massachusetts and he knew a guy who had a fairlight computer in his studio and so the Fairlight was like an early version of Pro Tools or something like that, going back to like Sampling. the late 70s. In fact, there's an amazing uh, video of, I think, Herbie Hancock playing with, playing the Fairlight in the studio yeah, with, yeah. Oh, I mean, somebody else that's famous too, like maybe it's like Nile Rodgers or something like that. I can't remember, but like he's using the Fairlight and showing it off and demoing it. Have you seen this video? No. It's very cool. You should check <laughs> it out. And like, uh, um, anyway, uh, this was incredible though. So Mike's friend was able to, there was another passage of music that had the same instrumentation, another passage oh, of, right. the, of the tape, okay? Right. I don't know how he did this because we didn't record to a click track or anything, but he was able to like, he took the passage, he, he, he dumped all 16 tracks into the, or maybe it was a 24 track, he dumped all 24 tracks of the other passage into his computer, and the computer also was hooked up with Simti and stuff to the tape machine, so the computer was running the tape machine, and I don't know how he did this, but he punched in all the tracks onto the tape machine, punched them in, into the gap that had been recorded over, and it lined up perfectly. I don't know wow. how he did it. Yeah, I this don't was know. a miracle. So I was like sold. And also yeah. Park Peters was an engineer in Denver that used to master all of our records, and he taught me mm -hmm. about mastering. Yeah. And like, um, he also would use a computer to master. So I was pro-computer from the start, because you can do uh, edits and crossfades and stuff like that, very experimental stuff with a computer that you can do to some degree with a tape machine, but a lot of it you can't do. Like, yeah, you difficult. can't with a tape machine take the bass drum 
and move it to a different part of the song and onto a different track. Yeah. You can't do that with a tape machine. And like, you could like, that's no problem. You could move everything around just like yeah. you're like moving around pieces of a game or something like that with a computer. That's a really, it's a different, it's a different thing and it's really awesome. They're both yeah. awesome. Because with a computer, you can't like take a razor blade and cut it and paste it back together with your hands and touch the magnetic material and absorb right. the, you know, somehow interact in some <laughs> sort of a, you know, electromagnetic way with your music. I mean, even today, like if I, if I do like a real, you know, tape, razor blade tape edit in front of a client, they're just like, <gasps> yeah. you know, like, like You're ruining like, my music. Yeah. No, well, they're, they're just amazed <laughs> yeah. that you can, you yes. wouldn't even know how to do it or, or like it's a lost art. Yeah, it's really primitive point, looking when terrifying. you do it too. It yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. It's your music. Yeah, you're like you're rocking, they're scrubbing the tape, listening for the kick drum. That's right. Okay, right there. Yeah, mark it with right. a china pencil. That's right. Cut it with a razor blade. You get the blue tape out. That you. Yep, that's right. And then you, you cut the well, other wait, part okay. and you glue them together. So let's just go ahead and explain together. this really fast. Let's explain this for people that have not done it so they can. We can go. Okay. We can do. We can go in that room and do a yeah, demo. Can we really do that? <laughs> not where there's this many people. Though. So if you, if you want to splice tape, you have to splice it at a place that there's like a sibilant or that there's like a white noise kind of sound or something. It's like a, a, a kick drum or a snare drum or something that doesn't really have a pitch to it. Something that has a t to it so that because the, ta the tape the tape the tape will make it's possible there'll be an artifact at the tape splice. Yeah. But the artifact is not like at a computer splice. When you do a splice on a computer and it doesn't work out, it's this horrible like tick and the tick is in the high end above the music. Oh, yeah, it is just like it's so much it's just so present. And 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 the tape machine's not like that. Like when you cut the tape and you paste it back together the magnetic particles are literally reaching across the gap where the tape was. It's mending itself just like your like skin mends itself when you get cut. It's really like the the the. the we're not talking about just like cutting something and it's done. It'll we're sound, talking about putting it back together and it heals. And it'll it, sound it, better the next that. day. Yeah, yeah, it, it will. It'll sound yeah, better. And so, so you don't hear the same kind of edit mistakes that you would with a tape machine. Yeah. But even so, there is some possibility of there being like a little. Or something yeah, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. And if you're going to have that, you want it to be on something like a kick drum or something where it's already got that kind of a timbre. Yeah. And so you want to splice. You want to find a kick drum hit or something that yeah. has a, 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 a sharp yeah. attack, quick sound. And then you, you turn off the tape machine's motors, but you have the play button engaged, yeah. the playhead. <laughs> yeah, and you just rock it back and forth, and you're holding it like a DJ, like scratching records on both of the tape things. It yeah. feels so good to it do it. It makes everyone in the room laugh. When yes, yeah, because it goes, roop, roop. it's a very uh, funny sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, always, I'm like, shh, shh. And then you locate that point, and you take this little blue grease pencil, like Larry said, yeah. and you mark right across. You draw on the record head your tape is on the head and you can see the little magnets on the record head lined up going down like a guitar pickup and you just draw a line right down there and that's where you're going to splice it right down that well, blue line well make sure you've selected the same head that you're making the mark on if you're oh, listening yeah. from the repro head and you yes. mark it on the, the no you're, yeah that's the right okay 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 yeah. sorry yeah, yeah. If you're listening on the repro head that's right <laughs> i did right. that once you did cut off so the beginning of a song you splice it like some uh, like two inches off. later i was like oh it just it just removed the the kick drum downbeat at the beginning of a Richmond Fontaine song for anyone that knows. So if anyone ever went back to the master tape, bad? well, we kept the previous mix. Let's put oh, okay, it that okay. Way. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Not the one I was trying to clean up the beginning of. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I was trying to make it have a nice entrance. Oh wait, and to wrap up our lesson, yes, lesson, the rest yeah, you just yeah. go by feel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you it's got some records. tape. What are you going to do with it? You yeah. know, you know what to do with tape. Just tape stuff up. Uh huh. Yeah. And it can look really junky too. Like your cut can look kind of jagged oh, yeah. because because your razor blades probably like 
you probably used it a thousand times and your tape can look all crappy and maybe the tape didn't go on perfectly. It's kind of like wrinkled, oh, like I if you don't that. wrap a present right. And like, even so, it sounds just beautiful and perfect and Sometimes. it heals itself. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, Sometimes. that's right. That's right. I, and th this goes back to the being able to tolerate, tolerate lo-fi, uh, yeah, low-fidelity right? uh, oh, content yeah. in your music. So the more low-fidelity content you can tolerate, the more you don't mind hearing the tape splice. True, <laughs> true. Like you get used to this. I mean, we listen. When it, the amazing thing about making records to me is that we um, we're like in an age now, like you're saying, meticulous kind of little things can be done and creative things can be done with a computer and stuff like that. And you know, someone if I do a splice, a tape splice and it's a little wacky, someone might go, "I don't know, man. I think you ruined the record." And then you go listen to Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles, and it's got one of the most egregious, weird tape splices. You hear that splice. You, you've heard that splice your entire life. Yeah. You might not hear it anymore because yeah. you've heard it your entire life and accepted it. It's its own effect. It you, is, You yeah. do a splice because you want that effect. Like when we were doing Hooray for Tuesday, we were wanting to hear the splice sometimes. <laughs> you want to hear it. You want it. It's like, yeah. that's the tape splice effect. You yeah. get it by splicing tape. There's no other way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but but you're asking about the computer thing. So yeah. I started using a computer. I've always been pro-computer, but I felt like somehow I also had this this sort of like quasi metaphysical like belief that the that the using digital would suck the soul out of the music if that was the final end pl place yeah. place for it, yeah. which I don't believe at all. It's total bullshit. Yeah. But like, um, it doesn't matter what you make music onto. What matters is the music you're making and the sounds you're making. It doesn't matter if you use a shitty mic. It doesn't matter what you're recording onto. It does not matter. If you want it to sound hi-fi, then you record on hi-fi gear. But you don't, if you don't, you, you, the, the thing that matters is that you're putting down an exciting, interesting, and fun vibe that feels like something to you and that you think your friends will like it or that it'll like be, it'll resonate with them. And that's all that, that really matters. Yeah. It doesn't, nothing else really matters about recording besides that. It's and true. so if you do that, a handheld tape deck is great. A uh, little like the kind you like, the flat old school kind where like you like like record. Oh, yeah. and, uh, anything's great. Anything's great to record. And you can make a great sounding recording that's indistinguishable from one that was made really fancy because everybody just assumes you went to all that trouble to make that great sounding recording sound like <laughs> that, even though you recorded on a handheld tape deck or whatever. <laughs> I, I get these weird things sometimes where I'm working with like mixing with someone or something and they, they've recorded everything really kind of pristine through the, the computer interface and whatever. And then they go, can't you just do something kind of lo-fi it up? And I'm always like, if that's what you wanted, you should have started with that sound. Mm -hmm. And and I get kind of irritated where I feel like uh, lo-fi is like this construct of a concept of a sound as opposed to like either a necessity in certain ways or just like if you want that sound, start by getting that sound at the beginning. Like it seems really odd to me to, to sort of apply a patina, you know? Yes, yes. But still you might just... It might, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. But you can, you can just dump it to a four track, and <laughs> yeah, it sounds, start, it sounds that I've way. Got my four track uh, is set out there. I we should that. start just uh, doing I that. I saw that. I know. Just do that more. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. That's '87. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I love, com I love using computers. I think nowadays I just record on. I, I really don't feel uh, like I don't have a bias towards any particular recording medium. Uh, you use the thing that gets the sound you want. If mm. you want a particular sound, and if you want to just have something that feels good you just use whatever is there like and you had time yeah. to record like working on a phd um i mean if you had so time to i have play a band music, how, i have a band work? with some friends of mine in atlanta yeah. called air sea dolphin mm -hmm. and we recorded a couple of seven inches i recorded seven inch with my friend will hart and that's the only recording i've really done in the last few years yeah. it's been hard to there's just no time with graduate school for like four years i didn't play guitar at all and then like um Thanks. i didn't even think about it i just didn't think about it i, I I wasn't able to do a lot of mathematics by being a musician type. And so I was just so glad to be just spending all of my time doing mathematics. It was awesome. Yeah. But then like after some years, I started to like feel like not complete. 
or something like that. Right. And so um, my friend John Ferguson and I went on tour opening for Neutral Milk Hotel a few years ago, the same one that the Minders right. uh, opened up uh, for. In fact, we played a show in Seattle together Fun. with the Minders. And um, my fingers were just like, I had no calluses and I was playing acoustic guitar yeah. and I just had these every night I'd have these gashes I'd show them off to the audience and like you, everybody would be like gasp <laughs> and like uh, <laughs> but, uh, oh, so, uh, so I didn't let that happen again and yeah. so I haven't been able to I, I didn't play as much and did I think you, that it's uh, did you practice okay. for this show you're gonna do oh gosh no I mean I didn't practice <laughs> I thought about what I would play in advance a little bit I made a list of songs that I can choose okay, from good. but no I don't like to practice for shows I think yeah. I think I want to just uh, I want to I want to Every time I play the song, I want to just feel it and be inside it. And yeah. I don't know. I'm not too worried about being good. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm worried about it. I want to be good. I'm just saying I'm not worried about... Uh, it's going to be terrible. I'm not worried about getting anything right. That's all I'm yeah. saying. I wrote the song. My fingers know how to play it, I hope. And so I always like to play songs that I haven't played either ever or, bef or for a long time Wow. Uh, when I play. So I'll probably try to throw in some songs. But I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see how it goes see. as we go along. Good. Cool. Um, thank, thank you so much for oh, having yeah. me here. Man, I just, one last Dude. question yes. before we... Um, since we do have the minders here playing as well, yes, I can't wait. Uh, do you have any rem like memories and thoughts or so many? Stuff They're about like making my best that record? friends, and like, like Mark her and I were like we we recorded yeah. together almost every day for years. Yeah. Um, well, okay. I mean, I have a lot of memories. Of, uh, I have tricky audio things I did type yeah. memories, and then I have like personal type memories. Which one do you want to hear? If we're running out of time. Mm. Um, okay, so for one thing, we had, that park, we had that parking lot area, and I can remember yeah, going oh out and, and working out harmonies for songs like uh, Hooray for Tuesday and like uh, uh, um, other songs on, on, her, on, her, on the album Hooray for Tuesday out yeah. in the parking lot where the, because we shared it with the, the Minders had, the, right. had their house and we had our studio, so we would go sit out in the parking lot and we had like benches and chairs and we'd sit on our cars and stuff and working out the harmonies, that was a very precious memory, like just cool. us all singing together yeah. and hearing those parts come together and like, um, it was really great. Um, I think that's one of my favorite memories of recording that record is just us sitting out and just being together as friends in that parking lot area that we had behind our studios in the alley. Um, um, but like uh, there was the way that I had recorded the drums on the album um, I had used I like to record with a three mic setup usually so I like having one overhead mic one mic on the snare drum and one mic on the bass drum and I have a fancy trick on the snare drum I'm going to tell you how I record the snare drum Ooh. because uh, this is the way I've always recorded the snare drum and it's the best snare drum sound and I worked it out on like the se one of the first Apple 7 inches recording on the first time I used a four track reel to reel um, I, uh, I discovered this great way to mic the snare drum which is that you um, can I, is there a snare drum? No, it's okay. It's too much trouble. Um, you, you, you use an SM57, and you point it not at the top of the snare drum and not at the bottom, which are the two usual places, but like straight at the side. Like the side of the snare drum's there. You put the mic like just close enough that it won't hit the snare drum every time the drummer hits it. Right. And it gets the perfect drum sound. That is the perfect snare drum sound. And you put it up coming from the outside of the set, so it's pointing inward at the drummer and right. underneath the hi-hat, so it's below the hi-hats, uh, mm -hmm. whatever, like... The, 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 the uh, like cone of sound that it yeah, sends yeah, out or something yeah. like that. And it's the perfect snare drum sound. So you want an awesome snare drum sound? Do that. Plus, it's also just a great drum sound. The whole drum set comes through the snare drum, and it sounds yeah. really great that way. And then I would, I would have another mic hanging down from, uh, from above that would be uh, probably a Neumann uh, U87. But you put it, and I put it at eye level for the drummer, facing directly at the kick drum pedal. That, right. to me, is the perfect place for the overhead. Right. So it's at eye level for the drummer, or slightly higher if they're like wild, like Jeremy and Neutral Milk Hotel, and they're going <laughs> to whack your, your, yeah, yeah. your U87. And by the way, my U87 has tons of like nicks Things. in it. And I think that up to some point, they made it sound better. Uh, every time I recognized <laughs> that when it got hit by a drummer, it would sound better. But then uh, the insides of it shattered like an egg. 
<laughs> and, uh, and my friend uh, Tyler at Acorn Amplifiers in Atlanta, who's this electronics genius that I know, pieced it together, really? glued it together, and fixed the insides of the microphone because it had like shattered like an egg. Oh, Jesus. And it works again. But anyway, um, uh, uh, so... Um, yeah. Anyway, that's how I record. That's my yeah. drum sound for recording the over. The, so I have a single overhead hanging down the the, the the capsules at the diaphragms at eye level, pointing at the kick drum pedal, right. and that's low enough that like it's in front of the drummer's face, directly in front of the drummer's face, pointing at the ki- uh, pointing at the kick drum pedal wherever okay. that is. Yeah. And then like the thing is that the cymbals are really really loud on the overhead, but the cymbals right. when you hit a cymbal, it's not like just sending sound out in a sphere. It's yeah, rocking yeah. and it's kind of sending the sound out in a cone that goes like that, right? And you have this cone like this, but the cymbals there. There's a cymbal there. The cones are going upward. So if you put the mic right there, it's underneath all of the cones of the cymbals. Right. And, all you're, and what you're picking up from the cymbals is not clang, 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 or right. like sometimes or other weird yeah, yeah. resonances, right, but right. you're picking up the thing that sounds awesome, the, sm- the splashy, crashy sound of the cymbal. Huh. So that's why yeah. I always put the microphone. And then the kick drum, I just like pointed at the front head and then, and then angle it a little bit, yeah. put it like an inch away or something like that. And so that it's across from the kick drum pedal through the, through the, right. through the, Drum though, not like stuck inside there. Right, not in the hole. It or sounds something. really yeah. good on the front head. And that's yeah. how I would record it. However, yeah. that technique, I was still working it out at the time, and I hadn't discovered the thing about putting the mic low. Oh. So I had the mic up higher because conceptually I thought it would get more of a room sound. Right. But the sound at that studio sounded terrible. We had to hang up blankets all over the place, and we had and we had and, and stuff to like uh, get it to sound reasonably good. Trying to negate it. Yeah, yeah, we gated it. And so, like, um, uh, uh, the drums on one of the songs on Hooray for Tuesday, the drums were very cymbal heavy. And I really wanted the drum, the snare drum to pop out, like, on Sgt. Pepper or something like that. Yeah. And we had this great snare drum sound, but the... I, I, the, the, the overheads, the, the cymbals were too loud. And so I took the drum track and I ran it through two tracks on my console. I had this Neotech uh, console yeah. series... Three, yep. I still have it. And wow! A friend of mine has it in his studio in uh, Lexington, K- Kentucky. But like, um, I ran it through two of the tracks, and on one of the tracks, I tuned the EQ to the uh, the frequency that the cymbals were the most glaringly crashy and splashy in, and I turned the EQ all the way up, like just to ten. So you were just hearing clang, clang yeah. so loudly, it was ear piercing. Yeah. And I cut the other frequencies and then I put it out of phase and I brought it in underneath the snare drum track. And you could bring it into a certain point right. that it would perfectly cancel out the clanging of the cymbals. And the snare drum would pop through, it was magic. It, and, right. and, and it would only happen at a certain point, like phase cancellations like that. If yeah. you went past that point, suddenly the cymbals were all clangy again. Yeah. But you could do it perfectly. So this is a good trick to do if you need to, is you put nice. the two channels out of, out of phase, you boost the undesirable frequency horribly on one of the channels and then you just feed it in from zero up until and you just listen carefully and you'll hear the thing you don't want to hear anymore go away and it's really cool and on top of that it has yeah. this cool phase shifty sound to it that's really right. psychedelic so it's yeah. not just a cool audio trick it's actually a really good effect see that work and so that's if you listen to that song to hooray for tuesday you hear in the drums is sort of a phase going yeah. through it and it's because we were like i was you know feeding it in i felt really clever about that in that's fact funny. phase cancellation is this really magical kind of like it's thing that's in it's very mathematical that's <laughs> inside sound you yeah. can like you can take two tracks like and have like say Two songs that are totally different, okay? They're totally different songs, but maybe you have some of the same sound effects that are crossed over. Mm, let me think. That's not, no, actually, I don't want to give away my trick. I haven't okay. used it yet. No problem. Okay, taking it back. I have a cool, I have a cool trick for embedding sound uh, songs inside other songs inside other songs and so on, and you can combine them in certain ways and have them all cancel out to get to the different layers. Oh, right. And it works really well, and yeah. it's very cool, hmm. but I don't want to give it away yet. That's the next time we talk. Yeah. <laughs>